spend time together in your word, and we pray these things, Jesus, in your name, amen. You may be seated. Well, a number of years ago, when I was about 12 years old, give it, give it take a year or so, I was out playing football in the street with uh, some of my neighbor friends. We played a lot of backyard baseball and street football, and uh, in the street, I was uh, going out for a reception. The ball was passed to me, and I dropped the ball, and my dad was on the porch, and he was uh, kind of heckling me from the sideline, so to speak. He's up on the porch, and he's making some comments to me. He thought they were funny. I was not finding them very funny. This happened a couple times, and eventually I went out for another pass in the end zone, went to catch the ball, dropped the ball. My dad said something, and I just erupted. And I turned and I looked at my dad, and I said, shut up, you stupid, and then expletive towards my father. And I remember my dad's face just going from one of kind of laughing and, you know, poking fun to just anger. And he just turns and walks in the house. And I looked at my buddies, and I thought, Slumber party, anybody at your house? <laughs> uh, I don't know if I want to go in. Eventually, I, I uh, got the courage to go back home in the house. And, and as I went back into the house, you just felt this sense of gloom and darkness kind of over my life, over my relationship uh, with my dad because of my disobedience, my dishonoring uh, to him. And there's times in life where we feel that way. We feel just discouraged. We look out into the future, if you will, and the situation we're in, and it just seems hopeless. It seems kind of bleak, depressing, even somewhat lonely and dark. And you may be there this morning as it comes to your walk with Christ. For whatever reason, you may be in a spot where you're looking out into the future of your life, and it just feels hopeless. It just feels discouraging. And Abraham, I think, was in a similar boat. Abraham, 13 years had passed since Hagar Sarai's slave had returned to Abram telling him what God told her about the baby she was carrying. Thirteen years had passed since Hagar had given birth, since Ishmael, her son, had been born to Abram. And thirteen years had passed since Abram doubted the promise of God and with his wife Sarai tried by their own strength, in their own doing, their own human effort to bring about what God had promised and only what God could do. See, Ishmael Ishmael, who was born of Hagar, the slave of Sarai, was not the child that God had promised to Abram, that he would fulfill his covenant through, but that the child represented Abram trying to accomplish God's promise by his own works and not through faith. And as a result, Abram was living in the consequences of that decision. I mean, imagine what that household would have been like. You have Sarai, who's 89 years old, no child, hoping for a child, wanting a child, yet never having a child, at least up to that point in time. And you have Hagar, this young woman who is the slave of Sarai, who bore Abram's only child up to that point in time. There's jealousy, anger, bitterness in the house between these women. Hagar looking down upon Sarah, thinking of her as lesser than her because she... She had given birth to a son and not her. Much conflict was in the house and no signs of it stopping. And so Abram is living in a mess that he has made. As a result of his lack of faith, his gloom and growing darkness about the promise of God kind of hung over Abram's house. And my guess is that promise that God made to Abram seemed more distant than ever. That the future for Abram seemed somewhat bleak. But what we find in this passage is this 99-year-old man whom God made a great promise and covenant with is encouraged and his faith is elevated by God. God shows him that there were great days still ahead. But how? How is the faith of Abram encouraged and elevated? That's the question we're going to look at here this morning. How is the faith of Abram encouraged and elevated? Well, there are two primary ways I believe God 
does this. The first way is this. God tells Abram who he is. God tells Abram who he is. Some 13 years later, verse 1, when Abram is about 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. God appears to Abram. Now, how exactly? What does that look like? We don't know. We're not told. But in his gloom, in his discouragement, God comes to this man, Abram, and he speaks to Abram. And what does God say to Abram? Well, first he says, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. You know, when we meet someone for the first time, we start by introducing ourselves. So maybe, for example, if you are a doctor, you might say, hi, I am Dr. So-and-so. Or uh, as a pastor, I could introduce myself as Pastor Luke Hookie, which I almost never do. It feels weird to do that. But in doing so, as you're introducing yourself, and say, hello, my name is doctor or pastor or whatever, to some degree, you're declaring who you are, what is true about you. Now, this isn't the first time that God had come and spoken to Abram, but it's been the first time in 13 years. And God starts by declaring who he is, that he is God Almighty. He is El Shaddai. Now, this is the first time that God uses this name for himself. But in doing so, he is declaring to Abram who he is, that who is God? Well, he is the all-powerful, the almighty, the all-sovereign God. As one commentator put it, he is the God who makes things happen by means of his majestic power and might. He is the God who makes things happen by the means of his majestic power and might. He is all-powerful, almighty, the all-sovereign God. And this name of God is a name that the patriarchs of the faith came to know quite well. In this name of God, it appears uh, over 31 times in the book of Job alone. Think about Job. Job is in, a, in a, a time of his life of real trial, real suffering, real difficulty, lost everything, family, livestock, home, all of it. And God uses this name with Job 31 times. Why? Why? Well, in part, to encourage Job in the midst of his trials. And I think the same is true here for Abram. See, when God says to Abram, Abram, I am God Almighty, he's saying, Abram, I am able to fulfill the awesome hopes and promises that I have given to you, that I've laid out before you. There is no need to let go of the promise because of your old age, because of the fact that you don't have a child through Sarah. There's no need to let go of the, the promise because of this situation. There's no need to succumb to some passive desperation you don't need to scale down the promise to match your ideas. You don't need to try to fulfill the promise through your own schemes. That everything, Abram, all your life, all your future, lies in this reality. I am God Almighty. So, Abram, here's what you need to do. Live in my presence and be blameless. Live in my presence and be blameless. In other words, Abram, walk with me. Walk with me. Trust me, Abram. Who am I? I'm the God who sits over heaven and earth. Trust me. Live in a way that honors me. Be devoted to me. This idea of blameless in part is whole or all of you. This completion. That completely live your life before me in total commitment to me. Not just some of you, Abram, but all of you. For I am El Shaddai. I am the Lord God Almighty. And so God starts by encouraging Abram with who he is. 
Secondly, God reaffirms his covenant with Abram. How does God elevate the faith of Abram? Well, he reaffirms this covenant that he has made with Abram. Verse 1, or verse 2 rather. I will set up my covenant between me and you, and I will greatly, or I will multiply you greatly. God says, I will set up my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. Now, when God makes this statement, he's not declaring a new covenant, but he's reaffirming his covenant that he has already made with Abram. In other words, God is formally stating the covenant again with Abram. I imagine it to be somewhat like renewing your vows in marriage. You know, people renew their vows, or they, uh, some people do, and they're not doing, renewing their vows, they're not getting remarried, but they're just saying again, to what is to be true or what is true of their current situation with their spouse. They're just ma- renewing that commitment to one another. And I think there's a similarity here with Abram. God is, is reaffirming his commitment to Abram, the covenant that he has made with Abram. Now, how does God reaffirm his covenant with Abram? How does he do that? Well, there are two ways God reaffirms his covenant with Abram. The first is through new names, through new names. Verse 3 Then Abram fell face down, and God spoke with him. As for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings come from you. I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you, your future offspring throughout their generations." It's a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan, as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. God lays out the covenant. You're going to be this father, Abram, of many nations, extremely fruitful. Nations and kings are going to come from you. This covenant also included his future offspring. It's a permanent covenant to you and your offspring, and you will possess all the land of Canaan. I will be your God, and I will be the God of your offspring also. I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice what God does, if you will, to Abram. What does he do? Well, he gives Abram a new name, verse 5. Your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For, you have, for I will make you the father of many nations. No longer is Abram, Abram, but now he is called Abraham. And we might look at this and just think, okay, whatever. So you're adding a syllable or whatever to the end of his name, God. What's the big deal? Well, in this culture, it's a very big deal. In fact, uh, Naham Sarna and it explains in his commentary in the Torah, he says this, in the psychology of the ancient Near Eastern world, a name was not merely a, a convenient means of identification, but was intimately bound up with the very essence of being and inextricably intertwined with personality, that names mattered. The Bible itself views name-giving as symbolizing the transformation of character and destiny. You see names changing after people became Christians, Saul became Paul, Cephas became Peter. You see these names being used. And in fact, when you give a name, Name-giving is a lordly, authoritative act. My wife and I were blessed to have uh, six kids, and 
as we, you know, approach uh, giving birth, my wife giving birth, you're always talking about names when, you're, uh, when your wife is pregnant. And my wife uh, usually comes up with the names, and usually I just have veto power. She told me that I actually came up with one good name out of all of our six kids, but none of those kids are named that name, so I don't know how good it actually was. But naturally, she would come up with names. I would just give nonsense names, but she would come up with names, and I would just be like, nope, I knew a kid that was named that, can't go there, like bad memories, like we can't have that. But in the hospital, after a child is born, what happens? Well, the doctor, the nurse, whoever looks at you as the parent, they say, what is the name of your child? That you have the right and the authority to name your child. It's an authoritative act because they belong to you. And see, God changing Abram's name meant God had authority over Abram. And it also confirmed that Abram would be the father of many nations. See, the name Abram meant exalted father, but it didn't refer to Abraham, Abram himself, but to God as exalted father. But when he became Abraham, the name referred to him that he, Abraham, would be the father of many nations, the father of a multitude of nations. In effect, you think about this, every time someone called Abraham, Abraham, they would reiterate God's promise that he would be this father of many nations. The day after day then, Abraham is reminded of God's promise to him that he would be this father of many nations in which kings would come from. But not only does Abraham give a, given a new name, but so is his wife, Sarai. Verse 15, God said to Abraham, as for your wife, Sarai, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. Now, I'm really happy that we've gotten to this point in the story where we can call her Sarah. Uh, Sarai, I don't know what it is, but it just it doesn't ring quite as well as Sarah. So we're finally in the spot where we can call her Sarah. And she's given this name, and even though there's a subtle difference from Sarai to Sarah, it's an important difference. That Sarah indicates a higher standing, a higher status. In fact, her name means princess, which is to say what? Well, she is the princess of the king of a multitude or of many nations, her husband Abraham. But how? How would this multitude come about? Again, that's been the issue. The issue is where is the child? You need to have a child in order for there to be many nations, God says in verse 16, I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she will produce nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. See, it was God's plan all along that she would be this princess to the king of many nations. It was God's plan all along to have her, to have a son who would carry on the promise that Abraham, the father of many, has his princess confirmed as his wife or in his wife, Sarah. And every time that Abraham and Sarah called to one another by name, Sarah, Abraham, or heard others use their name, they would be reminded of God's covenant promise to them and they would be reminded that God will be and he is faithful to keeping his promises. So God, the first way God reaffirmed the covenant was through giving them new names. But there's a second way. The second way is through a sign. Through a sign. 
When God made covenants with people, he provided a sign to confirm his covenant. For example, Noah. After God destroys the world through the flood and Noah gets off the ark, God promises to Noah, I will never flood or destroy the world again through a flood. And he gives him the sign, the rainbow. Not of sexual freedom, liberation, doing whatever you want sexually, but that God would not destroy the world again through a worldwide flood. Or Moses. Think about Moses and the covenant that the people made at Mount Sinai. What was the sign of the covenant? Exodus 31, the Sabbath. That every seventh day, the people of God were to rest. They were not to work, and they were then reminded that seventh day of the covenant that God had made with them and them with God. And so what sign did God give Abraham to affirm his covenant with him? Well, verse 9, God also said to Abraham, as for you, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring. Whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. And if any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The sign. The sign that God gives to Abraham affirming the covenant is circumcision. And God, God commanded Abraham that he and all of his male offspring, all of them must be circumcised as a sign of being a part of the covenant of God. Now, circumcision did not originate here, did not originate with Abraham. It was practiced, for example, uh, in Egypt in very early periods as an act of ritual purity, as a requirement for men uh, to work, who worked in the Egyptian temple. It was also practiced in other places centuries before Abraham's time, but here it has a new meaning attached to it. What is that meaning, or why did God choose circumcision as the sign? Well, there's at least four reasons, probably many more. Is one is it implied commitment to God and to his people. It implied commitment to God and his people. It was a covenant made with God, but also with the people. Notice Genesis 17, 14. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from who? From his people. He has broken my covenant. This is a covenant that was made in community with God. And then to not have to be circumcised was to reject the covenant itself. Is to reject God, to reject the people of God. And so it implied commitment to God and to his people. Second, it symbolized, came to symbolize the discarding of sinful ways. Deuteronomy 10, therefore circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked any longer. This idea of cutting off or uh, parting ways with sinful tendencies or sinful lifestyle. This idea of being committed to God is to turn away from sin. And it came to symbolize that idea as well. Third reason is it reminded them that they needed, to, needed God to fulfill the promise. It reminded them that they needed God to fulfill the promise. What happened 13-ish years prior 
Abraham, in a moment of desperation, if you will, didn't trust God, and he relied on himself. He had tried to accomplish God's promise through his own flesh by sleeping with Hagar, the slave of his wife, Sarah. And though she got pregnant, he failed because God did not accept Ishmael. Because Ishmael did not come from God, if you will. He's not promised, but it was Abraham doing his own thing in his own way. And so for Abraham, circumcision was in one sense an act of repentance and a sign of dependence upon God for the promise. This idea we can't rely on ourselves, but we must rely on God. We should not put any confidence in the flesh. It's fitting that the organ that is used to bring about life was cut to remind them that the promise of life rested on God. The promise of the covenant rested with God. Fourth, and lastly, it's a reminder of the enduring, irrevocable nature of the covenant. In our culture, when uh, people get married, they typically exchange rings. And a ring is a circle, right? It symbolizes this ongoing covenant. It is never-ending covenant. But with a ring, you can take the ring off. Doesn't mean you're not married, but you can, you can take it off. You don't have to wear it. But think about circumcision. It's permanent. It's not something you can change. And it's permanent for a reason. Listen to what verse 13 says. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. See, the circumcision signified that this covenant that God made with Abraham was irrevocable. A permanent, ongoing covenant. It symbolized the everlasting covenant that God made to Abraham. And so God, God comes to Abraham at a time when life is probably somewhat bleak and discouraging. Household is, is kind of a mess. Trying to kind of bring about God's promise, not by faith, but through his own flesh, his own doing. But God comes to Abraham and he is elevating and encouraging the faith of Abraham by reminding him, who he is, and by reaffirming his covenant to him. That Abraham, your new name is Abraham, the father of many nations. And there is a sign, circumcision, so that you will know this covenant is a permanent covenant. That you can trust me. Now as we close, I'm sure many of us, as I said earlier, there may be a point in time if we're there now or will be where we are discouraged at life, in our faith, that life is hard. Life may not be going as we hoped and planned. We may have made decisions that were not in faith, but in our flesh, and we're experiencing the consequences of those decisions, and the outlook on life seems somewhat bleak, or something has happened to you. And part of what needs to happen for us is that we need to be encouraged in our faith, and we need to be encouraged in our following of Christ. We need to be elevated or lifted up in our faith. How? Well, through taking hold of what is true. And what I want to do is just give you three truths that close our time together uh, that come in line with this passage. Three truths to take hold of to help us encourage us in our walk with Christ, to look to Christ, to find strength, to continue to find hope and joy in life. The first is this, is take hold of who God is. Take hold of who God is. When God comes to Abraham, again, he tells him, I am God Almighty. And what you truly believe about God, it is the most important thing in your life. What you think about God 
is the most important thing in your life. Why? Because the way we live is determined by how we view God. If we don't think there's a God, that, that implies that we can just kind of live life the way that we want. There's no consequences. So many people live that way. Or if we believe there is a God and there's a sense of a fear over our life, it affects how we live, decisions that we make, behaviors that we partake in. That what we believe about God, it affects our day-to-day life, how we think about other people. And here when God appears to Abraham, he uses this name El Shaddai, the awesome, the almighty, all-powerful God. And if we believe that to be true, that God is the awesome, almighty, all-powerful God, then our lives, we will live out the fullness of God's promises to us. That will impact how we think about life. I mean, do you, do you believe that God is almighty and all-powerful? Do you believe that God is sitting in heaven and he is sovereignly in control of all things? That he is sovereignly in control of your life. And that God, God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. That God's will for our life, whatever that might be, is the best way possible to live. That God is good. That he cares deeply about you. What you believe about God impacts your faith, impacts your life. I Appreciate, as one commentator put it, any thoughts of God less potent than the God of Abraham will shrink your soul and neutralize your faith. That so often the reason why in our faith, in our life, we feel discouraged, we feel defeated, is because we're not thinking rightly about who God is in relationship to us. And one thing that I've done for years as I've, as I've read the Bible, and in particular with the Psalms, is I've gone and I've highlighted the character of God. Who, who does God claim to be? See, I, I don't care what you think about God, what the culture says about God. I want to know what does God say about himself. And brothers and sisters, what we must do is we must take hold of the character of God, of who he is. This is part of Abraham's problem is he is not trusting in who God is. It's not that he doesn't believe in God, that there is a God, but is he trusting in who God himself claims to be? And likewise, the same question is asked of us. Are you believing, trusting in who God himself declares himself to be? Second is take hold of the circumcision done by King Jesus. Now you might be thinking, okay, wait, how does that work? Well, track with me for a moment. In verse 6, God says, I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings come from you. Verse 16, I will bless her, speaking about Sarah. Indeed, I will give you a son by her and I will bless her and she will produce nations Kings of peoples will come from her. That one aspect of the covenant that's revealed in chapter 17 is this idea of kings. To Abraham and to Sarah, God says, kings will come from you. Now this is an amazing revelation. 
And about a thousand years later or so, this began to happen through a line of kings in the line of King David. The kings did come out of Abraham and Sarah. And what you notice is at the end of Genesis, Jacob gives a prophecy. And when he's prophesying over his sons at the end of his life, and he says about his son Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah. This idea, the scepter, the kingly rule, will not depart from Judah or the staff between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. Jacob says that the scepter will not depart from Judah. There's someone who is coming, whose right it is to come, and the obedience of people belongs to him. And David comes along, and David is promised in 2 Samuel 7, 16, your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. That David, he's throne would be ongoing. In fact, we're told in Isaiah 9, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. This kingly figure, and then we're told in Zechariah, who prophesies, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble, riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. And you fast forward to the New Testament in Palm Sunday, and what did we find a thousand or so years later after David, Jesus, who is of the line of David, of the tribe of Judah, whom God promised that the scepter would never depart from, rides into Jerusalem. And the people there are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven that Jesus, Jesus is the king that comes. This prophecy of kings coming from Abraham, from the line of David, it culminates in Christ. In Christ, on that week, he rides into Jerusalem. What happens? Well, Jesus, out of perfect obedience to his Father, he goes to the cross. On Friday of that week, Jesus is nailed to a cross. What's happening on that cross? Was Jesus being hung on a cross because he committed crime against the Roman government? No, they had nothing to accuse him of. But see, Jesus was on the cross, not because of something he had done, but because of what we had done. And the cup of God's wrath was emptied on Christ, that his blood was spilled, and the new covenant was then established. And see, Jesus on the cross underwent the ultimate circumcision for us. Do you remember what he said just before he died on the cross? Matthew 27, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus, forsaken cut away because of our sin so that we would not be forsaken or cut away from God for all of eternity. And Paul says in Colossians, you were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands, not a physical circumcision, not by the putting off the body of the flesh, 
but in the circumcision of Christ. Meaning what? The circumcision of Christ that Jesus was cut away, forsaken by his Father for us. And Paul says in verse 13, And when you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all of our trespasses. What happened when Jesus died on the cross? That he was paying for your and my sin. And to anyone who believes in Christ, the promise of the gospel is that your sin is erased, is completely forgiven. In verse 14, it says, He erased the certificate of debt. The debt that you owe God with its obligations. This debt of death that was against us and opposed to us, that Jesus took it away by nailing it to the cross. Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Reminds me of the song, Amazing Love, How Can It Be, that you, my King, would die for me. That Jesus, who is the King over all, came and he died in our place to pay for our sin. We deserve death, not him. But Jesus, out of love for you and for me, he sacrificed his life. And that Jesus died and we know he rose again and ascended to heaven and he's seated seated at the right hand of the throne of God and he will come back and he will rule and reign in his kingdom and because of him, brothers and sisters, we will be with him. Ruling and reigning. And so, brothers and sisters, we should be encouraged as we look out into life because we have been circumcised with a greater circumcision, that of Christ. That we will not be cut away from God when we pass from this life to the next, but we will be with God for all of eternity. And lastly, number three, is take hold of who you are in Christ. God comes to Abram and gives him a new name, Abraham. In a sense, a a new identity, if you will. And as Christians, we have been given a new name and a new identity. And the Bible in the New Testament is littered with all kinds of new names describing those who have faith in Christ. Saint Righteous, blameless, chosen, a royal priesthood, sons, daughters of God Most High, whom we can now look to God and call him Father. Many of us, what we need to do is to look at who we now are in Christ, that Christ has made us new, that we have been born again, and that the Spirit of God now lives in us. And who do we belong to? We belong to God. And what can change that? Nothing. Nothing can change that you belong to God. And I don't know about you, but when life is a little bit crazy, and not going the way that you had hoped it went, or uh, the way that you thought it might go, Something that gives me confidence and hope is that no matter what's happening circumstantially in my life, nothing will change that I belong to God, that he lives in me, and that I, that we who have faith in Christ will be with him for all of eternity. So brothers and sisters, we have many reasons to be encouraged by who God is, through what Christ has done, and now who we are 
because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, God, we do ask that you